Welcome to Life is Art. Today we're going to sit down and spend some time with Tom Cox, a well-known and prolific jazz and classical artist. Tom grew up here in Little Rock, Arkansas, and then went on to study at the University of Indiana and at the Cleveland Institute of Music. After that, he taught for a few years at University of Akron before returning to Little Rock to teach and head jazz and music theory at UA Little Rock. Tom has orchestrated and composed chamber music, classical music, but he's most well-known here in Central Arkansas for his jazz. While teaching at UA Little Rock, Tom founded and played in several trios, quartets, and quintets throughout the city and the region. His pieces of composed music have traveled throughout the world, Italy, Japan, Amsterdam. Tom is also a writer, a painter, a philosopher, and a deeply spiritual man. Tom's marriage to his wife, Pat, has been full of love and compassion, and it feeds his soul and his music on a regular basis. Today, Tom's going to share with us about what it is to compose, how creativity plays a role in daily life, his spiritual practice of journaling and meditation. And in fact, because of that, we're going to cover so many topics, I decided not to edit this interview down as I do normally. We've kept it almost in its entirety. So sit back, relax, and let's spend an hour with the indomitable Tom Cox. So I wanted to spend some time with you, really just kind of diving into your breadth of passions. Mm-hmm. I've known you as a pianist. Mm-hmm. I've known you as uh, a painter, mm-hmm. uh, one who draws as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you write. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I do know about all artists is if they allow themselves enough time, that passion continues to only grow. Yeah. What, else, what else do you do? Well, in terms of like artistic things that really... Um, draw me in um, over the course of my life it's initially was music and piano and that that has remained the dominant attraction um, I, I, I'm absolutely totally in love with the instrument and um, so my my composing comes out of that too there was always in me a strong is even as a seven, eight-year-old when I started, a strong need to take the music the piano teacher has given me and to, uh, to vary it in some way because uh, I liked this or that and I like to change it here and there. So the, that tendency was already there. And so I just let it uh, continue to develop. And then when I went away to school, for music school, I did it formally, studied composition. Um, I've always been, I discovered my interest in the visual arts uh, I discovered that I, that it was there. It was just latent. And I discovered it when I went to Cleveland for master's work. Uh, the Cleveland Music Institute of Music is located in what's called the University Circle area of Cleveland. In that area, you have uh, Case Western Reserve University, Cleveland Clinic, uh, Cleveland Institute of Art, Cleveland Museum of Art, and, and the Cleveland Institute of Music, all within about a mile radius of each other. It's a phenomenal area to go into. And I began to uh, just 
on my own, on a whim, I was heading to the museum one day, uh, which I used to love to go to, walk down the street, and I walked by the uh, Cleveland Institute of Art, and I said, well, that's kind of like the Cleveland Institute of Music when I'm going to school. I wonder what students do in there. And so I walked in, and immediately there were paintings, student paintings everywhere of all types, uh, figurative painting, abstract painting, multimedia work. And I was just dumbfounded. It just it was like, this is the greatest treasure I've ever found other than the piano. And so uh, I kept, when I had time, I would, I would go either there or to the museum at least once a month. And I began to learn who the major painters were. I remember seeing my first Vermeer. And I just couldn't believe what I was looking at. It was just gorgeous to me. And so I went in the gift shop and I bought a little postcard with that particular Vermeer painting on it. And uh, I just, I kept it. I kept it for years. Yeah. And then writing uh, in terms of, uh, I love to write, just to write. I, I started writing, I started spiritual journal writing. It's not like a diary. When I was about 40 and I still, I still write every day in it. And I have, uh, have every journal going back to when I was 40 years old, I'm 72. And you can, most, most date you could pick, I could find it in one of my journals and tell you what was, um, what was going on uh, in, internally in the internal dialogue with me or whatever. Uh, it does, reference some facts that happened that day, but only generally if they're related to something interior that is important for me to hold on to. So I've just written for, what, 32 years or something, and I love it. That's quite a collection. It is. Let me ask the thoughtful question, because I know that you're no stranger to uh, let's say, loss and, and things of that nature. When you pass, what do you want to have happen with these spiritual journals? Well, that's a good question. Um, a very good question. I've, I've wondered about that lately. And the answer is, I just don't know yet. It hasn't... It's on my radar, so to speak. Um, I don't know if anybody would be interested in them, first of all. Uh, they're very personal and private now, and I do read occasionally sections from them to my very close friends who in keep, who they're writers, and they encourage me to keep, keep doing it. Uh, I've had two or three writers say, you are a very good writer. Well, that's really a compliment because I didn't study writing. Uh, but I just know how to write about my interior life. Um, like I said, that, that question is on my mind, but it's not first and foremost in my mind right now. And, and in order to answer that question, I, I will have to sit down quietly, I don't know how long, and just open my mind and ask God to show me if there is someone or some place that he would like them to be, and then make, you know, open the door for that. Or, or not. Maybe they should just go into the trash. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have, I, I have several friends that write, uh, and all of them in, in unique fashions. Mm -hmm. So I have no doubt that your spiritual journaling is uh, unique to your own experience and process. 
But some of them have said, oh, I want them to all be burned. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are very private, and I wouldn't want anybody else to read these. These aren't for other people. These are for me. uh, I I lean in that direction. However, I have had several—well, over the course of those 32 years, I've had maybe seven, eight, ten people who I've been willing to read to uh, from it. Tell me how this shouldn't be lost, that how it should be, how it's useful to to them. And it gives words and expressions for them of things that are going on inside of them that they can't find the words for. And um, I know that the famous Catholic priest, uh, Henry Nouwen, who's written so many books on the interior life and, 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 um, his life of pastoral ministry to the uh, disabled, um, both in France and in Canada. You know, he he at first thought all of his personal journals also should just go, should just, when he died, they should not be looked at. But his publishers convinced him that, uh, no, they were too rich and that others would find something in there that they could really, it would really help them in their understanding of what was going on with them in, in the, the spiritual dynamics, how God was working or moving them or this and that. Uh, now, I can't write like Henry Nouwen. I don't have the time to be that reflective, and he studied philosophy and theology quite extensively too. But I don't know. It, I think I'll know when it's time. I can't help but admire, one, the fact that you do write every day. Uh, I've aspired to that at various periods in my life and have succeeded only for a brief period of time. Mm -hmm. But the second thing is it really is a gift to the world to have records of reflection Mm -hmm. and details of journey. One of my own great existential crises comes from the reality that we do not have genetic memory, meaning... When I'm when I was born, I did not have all the knowledge and memories of my parents, right? In, or grandparents, or anybody. Yeah, I, I do not know. And the reality is, you go back three generations, and they're pretty much lost to us. We don't know. Yeah. We don't. We might know their it's names. It's the same in my family. Yeah, I I can go back to my great grandfather, and that's as far back as I can get on my father's side. Yeah, and we've traced the heritage back to Ireland and Scotland and so forth. But yeah. do, do I know anything? about these people other than names and dates. So to leave behind a treasure trove of 30 plus years of daily, this is my transparent, honest, where I am, I think in this moment is probably the closest that we have to genetic memory. It's makes sense. Yes. And, um, mine are about, you know, when I started it, uh, I started it soon after I was introduced to, uh, it, it, a couple of years after I was introduced to what would, what is known as the con- the contemplative practice of one's spiritual life, um, and uh, in that life, many contemplatives, both monks and, and uh, priests, um, do journal writing that is to be a narrative of their spiritual journey through life to see to use the the paradigm of seeing and understanding your life as a, as a pilgrimage and uh, over which time you are striving to and through God's mercy and grace to grow more and more uh, in, in the depths of your Christ-likeness. 
And so the journal becomes uh, a record of that seeking day by day and what has uh, what you can look back on and see that in fact how you have moved there's been movement and it can be in it and so in it you can put a number of things related to the spiritual life you can examine for instance um, have you become more patient uh, have you become less judgmental um, it takes a while to look back and see because those, those spiritual gifts, they're, they're gifts, but they're not given to us fully ripened. Uh, they're given to us as seeds. And so they take a, you know, some would just have a natural proclivity to. Some people are just nice uh, and compassionate, but a lot of people aren't. And especially in today's world, and I see it in Western society, there's an amazing amount of narcissists, frankly, in our society today. Uh, uh, but these, these gifts of God, um, when, you, when you, you have to do the work, and then through His grace and mercy, He multiplies that. So, and you can see over time you're growing. And as you, and as you experience that, both by seeing it in your life and by also recognizing it in your journals, maybe you hadn't seen it, but you start reading and you go, well, that is true. That's happened to me. Then you, you feel good about yourself. You know, it's not a pride. You feel good about the work that is being done in you, you know. Since you mentioned specifically compassion and judgmentalism, I'll just ask, what has been your own progression there, and have you seen growth in those areas? And how do you know that? Oh, that's a good question. I've seen growth in... I've seen growth in love. Um, Now, the most... The most growth I've seen in love has come about one through a person, and that's my wife, who um, I fell in love with very quickly, and she with me. And I have experienced a greater and a deeper love for another human being in her being that than I ever imagined even possible, that I could ever even have thought about. And we've been married 32 years, and that love is so strong right now and and so deep um, that I don't know the limits. I don't think it's... uh, I can't imagine it having any limitations. Uh, That's not to say that we used to not argue at times. Of course we did. But it's the sense of a fullness. The other way in which my love has grown also, this is is significant, and people, most people don't, are not aware of this. But you have to look for it. Suffering real suffering in life is, can be, and is meant to be not viewed as uh, a 
punishment, but rather as an opportunity for spiritual growth. I have grown more through suffering in my life than by any other means. I have, my love has expanded out beyond myself and those close to me that I knew and deeply love. And every time I would go through a period of intense suffering, when I would come out of it, my love and my degree of love and compassion would have been broadened and deepened, extending out to people I didn't know uh, within my community. Uh, tr truly noticing a shift in between, I, I'm really concerned about that person, you know, to, to something more, to like, they're on my mind. I'm really concerned about them. Wonder what, um, if there's a way I can help or something like that. Uh, to, you know, people I don't know. Uh, yes, I'd say, you know, all of us are judgmental. Uh, we're just that way by nature and also by nurture. Uh, I have become less judgmental, definitely. I, I don't think I was ever a real, a very, a real judgmental person. Uh, to, to a lot, to, a, to much of a degree. But w to what degree I was, even that's changed now. Um, I sort of just, okay, there's a poem by, by Rumi that I really like that sort of expresses this. The poem is short and it goes like this. There is a field in which there is no right doing and no wrongdoing. I'll meet you there. That says what I'm trying to say better than I can say it. I mean, you have to maybe think about it again and again. There is a field in which there is no wrongdoing, no right doing, and I'll meet you there. He's not saying that there aren't absolutes in the world. He's not saying that there aren't truths. He's talking about the proclivity to judge, to judge others, to believe that your way is the only way, to believe that, to see the world in a bifurcated way, black and white. I believe the right way, the way you believe is the wrong way. This is the best kind of music. Your music is no good. In other words, everything gets thrown into good or bad, black, or there's no gray in that kind of thinking. And so consequently, those kind of people really never, even though they may know each other and see each other frequently, they never really have what, what a real relationship is because their judgmentalness gets in the way of their ability to hear not only what the other person is saying, but to, to, to experience it, not just intellectually, not just hear the word, but to really experience something of, 
of where those words are coming from, experience that in their own interior being. That's relationship. Uh, and I think that's what's room, what Rumi's talking about when he says there's a place where there's no right doing and no wrong doing. Um, he's talking about the field where we, we, where we can get to in our, in our spiritual growth where we can meet anybody where they are and not label it. Listen to them. And that when you can do that, you find that you are a lot more like that person than you are different from them. And it doesn't matter what race, religion, socioeconomic level of wealth, middle class, poverty you come out of. It, it doesn't matter. Every human being has intrinsically the same basic needs. The first one being for self-dignity as a human being. To be for others to respect their, their dignity as a human being. That's just one of many. And often we don't do that either. Okay. I'm not going to go on with that. Well, I, those are some profound thoughts. Um, you say you're not going to go on with that, but I feel like we could spend tons of, we could probably spend days there if we really oh, wanted to. I think, we, oh, we could. You and I could. We because could I know that. you have a lot of thoughts on that too. Yeah. I, I know you just well enough to know that um, there's a lot under the surface of, of you that is worth uh, getting my, my getting to. Uh, uh, and I know that because I know your family and I know that because there's some people you can be around and you can just pick up on it. If you're an intuitive person, then you just intuit that, that there's a, there are experiences that this other person has had in which they have grown from them and they are conscious of that growth and they can talk to you about them. And from that, they are like little gems that you can take and make your own life better, make your own self, you know, better. You know, I like to think that we all aspire to that concept of making self better. And you mentioned the ability to talk about, to be aware of and to talk about one's growth. <clears throat> and I find that that in itself is one of the great lifelong challenges, mm -hmm. which actually excites me. Yeah, me too. Of not just becoming more aware of what obstacle am I facing? How far have I come? Mm -hmm. But how do I now articulate in a way that is meaningful, not just to me, but to those around me, mm -hmm. that I can share my very personal yeah. experience, which is at the same time deeply universal. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. I think my reluctance to do that with my journals has been from a kind of not so much from what what one might call not not from fear uh, and not from shyness, although I'm somewhat I'm not shy I'm just sort of introverted, 
it's more from, um, you know, when, when, when you uh, open that up to other people, you're making, you're letting yourself be very vulnerable. Yes. And so uh, I found at first I didn't want to be that vulnerable because I wanted to keep this process going. But as I've aged and gotten into my 70s, uh, I'll let go of a lot of the, uh, I've, one of the things I've worked on is letting go of, since I was 50, is letting go of a lot of the internal dialogue which, in which you uh, are always measuring yourself um, against someone or some other group. Uh, and and trying to determine if you're making a positive impression on them uh, or if you're getting through to them. And so your sense of, you, you, you don't yet, you have not owned yourself yet for who you, who you are. And, uh, and it's possible that's because you have not become the self that is there and has not, you have not matured into. Uh, the one in which you were always intended to be called, it's called the true, in contemplative language, that's called the true self versus your false self. The false self is the, Paul, Paul called it your, your old sin nature. But it's your old self. There's a true self that uh, God knows and has always intended for you to become. And as you continually in a conscious way, work on your spiritual development, it impacts every aspect of your life. It changes you uh, psychologically. It changes you, certainly changes you relationally, you know. Uh, it changes the way you think about yourself. It changes you in terms of where you're grounded. Am I grounded in the opinions of others or am I grounded in something that is eternal? You know, and uh, and and when you're grounded there, then you you're aware of all your own, your your failings, your shortcomings, but you're no longer held hostage by them. You you become you begin to become aware of your strengths, how you've grown, this and that. It's the same in art. It's the same thing too in art. You know, art. Uh, Practicing the arts is work. It's spiritual work. That, that's going on underneath the surface of it. <clears throat> but it's, um, it's work, meaning that you have to sit down there and do the work. But if you do the work... Um, God has created us to be creative persons. If you do the work, he blesses that work. So you become more proficient at what you're doing and, and hopefully you become, your art becomes like the journal in, that can speak to all. It takes on a transcendent quality, which you're not aware of as the artist. You just hear that from other people talking to you. And, and you, when you do, you're either going to say, oh, that's so cool about me that I did that. 
or you're going you're gonna to feel kind of surprised and shocked. And then you're going to feel kind of good. And then you're going to realize it's not coming from you. Yes, you put in the work, but that's an, that's an extra thing that got thrown in there. And it didn't come from me. And then you're going to feel kind of um, a little afraid of it. <laughs> you know, did I play this time so that people got were transcended? You know, you, you go there in all your mind, you know, and you have to just let all that go, too. <laughs> so and it's about doing the work, whether it's spiritual work or whether it's artistic work. And you have to love doing the work. You have to love doing the work. Sometimes I love doing the work as much as or sometimes more than uh, playing, you know. There is something deeply profound about doing the work, as you say, uh, practicing the same lick over and over Mm -hmm. until it gets there. And I find that in those moments of performance, when someone does come up afterwards and say, "What what you said up there through your instrument was profound to me, I like how you said it, that there was something extra thrown in there. And in my mind, it's amongst other things, one of the pieces that it is, is again, it's that deeply personal reality that speaks to the universal. Meaning, if I want to write a short story that I think is going to connect with other people, I don't write in generalities. Mm -hmm. I write about a specific character Mm -hmm. with specific flaws and traits and going through a specific struggle. And somehow, as we look at the personal, as we get that opportunity to be, uh, let's say, social voyeurs, where I can look into your own personal life with transparency, we have that, from literature standpoint, that third-person omniscience. That is the great gift, and the arts give us that, whether you're looking at a painting. Um, Ray LaMontagne... Uh, a vocalist, a singer, said that he loved Bob Dylan at one point, and somebody said to him, would you love to meet Bob Dylan? And he said, why? I've yeah. already heard his music. Yeah, that was what was most important. <laughs> felt like he, he knew some part of the interior of, it, of Bob Dylan that um, he already knew. Yes. Yeah. And that was the part he wanted to hold on to. Uh, yeah. Speaking can, of which, yeah. Go ahead. What, what kind of story can you play for us? Well, it's interesting you talk about story and music because definitely um, I, uh, I, I, re- I realized many, several, several years ago, and I don't know, somebody asked me a certain question that brought this to my attention, the, the idea of, of story in art uh, or in the arts. Um, oh, yeah. My music, I, I, what I realized was that when I write a piece of music, it's a narrative. There's a story going on. There's a narrative in everything. Yes, there is. And, and then I start seeing it in my painting and, and uh, in other people's work, too. And so I began to realize that when I uh, am writing, that there is... Uh, I don't, I'm not so conscious of it when I'm writing, but it's when I finish and I start to play. And then I start to play it. And, and basically, I'm telling a story. Now, I... It's not the story in which I can tell you what, it's, what the lines are and who the characters are and all that. It, but it's a story. And I believe it's a story in which each person, if they're, if, if it, they're pulled into it, creates their own story, you know, 
uh, and, and it's a story that's too deep for words, but it's but they know it's in there. It has pulled something out of them, like it pulled got pulled out of me. You may play something. Is that what you want me to do? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. This is a piece. I'm going to go with this one. This is a kind of lush, beautiful piece with interesting harmonies uh, and interesting uh, un unusual harmonic movement. Uh, and it's just called Holland. <clears throat> Because I think when I wrote it and played it, I thought, well, I think it sounds like what it would feel like to be in Holland. I think that's about <laughs> as far as I got with it. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Beautiful. Are you familiar with TED Talks? Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. 
there's one. And I, I hate when somebody's talking and, and I'm on my phone or vice versa, but I was, as you were talking, I was looking for this one TED Talk. There's a gentleman named Benjamin. I think his last name starts with a Z. He's a composer of some kind. He'll come to me later. He says, um, he talks about one cheek playing at the piano. One cheek? One cheek. Where you're leaning to the side and only one cheek is on the bench. <laughs> and what, I was thinking of the wrong cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> and what he says is, when you're playing a piece, uh, if, if you're just going through the motions of pushing down keys and vibrations are happening and that's all that it is, uh, where's the story? Where's the narrative? Yeah. And he said, when you really get into a story, you start to engage. Just like when you're listening to a speaker, you start to lean forward in your chair and listen and interact. And, and as you're telling the narrative across the keyboard, you can't help but lean into oh, yeah. it. Yeah. You have to move. It's movement, you know? Yeah. It's just, and it comes, um, with me, it comes without, you, you don't think about it. It's just, it's happening. But you're not aware that you're, you're, you're moving, your body's moving. Uh, you're just following this story where it's taking you. And like every time I play a piece, I don't know where, I, I mean, I know what the melody is and I know what the harmony is going to be and I know the tempo I want to take and I know the time signature it's in. Uh, but in terms of even how I interpret that phrase or that written down melody and harmony, uh, it, it will vary. I'll, I'll leave myself a lot of latitude to, to vary uh, whether I keep that phrase in tempo or whether I make it more rubato. I mean, you can do that as a solo pianist. Now, if I had bass player working with me, I got a or horn player, then I got to read what's on the page because he can't read my mind. But the beauty about playing solo piano and, and the beauty about that's the beauty about the instrument itself is that it's got everything. And uh, you, the, the only drawback is that you can't carry the one you love the most with you. You have to take what, what's there when you arrive, you know. Fortunately today, you know, here is Stelboa Smith. I've played on this Steinway many times. It's a beautiful instrument. Yeah, yeah. And again, we are, we're sitting in the UA Little Rock campus at the Stella Boyle Smith Hall on a Steinway that was uh, just recently tuned, I think. Uh, it sounds uh, like it. About a week ago, something like that. Beautiful. Sounds great. So... Within that, we've, we've, I don't want to quite give up on the concept of narrative yet because I think there's such a richness within that. And you had said, and I totally uh, not only agree, but I love this concept, that each individual listener brings their own. So you called this Holland because you thought that perhaps it sounds like what it might feel like to be in there in that moment. As a listener, I, I tend to engage just with that instead of trying to control the narrative i allow whatever is being performed to create images and 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 feelings and emotions and without knowing what i'm doing i suspect i'm obviously drawing on past experiences and i smell things and see things same thing happens to me and that's the first that was the 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 first um transcendent realization that I ever had regarding playing. So one day I realized, somebody asked me a question. I think they said something like this to me when I was in my forties. What are you thinking about when you, when you're playing all those, those notes and that stuff, what are you thinking about? And I had to stop. I'd never been asked that question. And it, what immediately did came to my mind. And I knew when it, it, it when it just immediately came, that's something I, I trust a lot, that intuition. That uh, what came to my mind is I see paintings. 
it was later that I realized that I also, that there's a narrative there also that I am describing, but not with specifics. But, but, I, but what I often see when I'm playing, um, especially the music I write or new music, is, is some kind of a painting. I'm looking at a painting, but the painting is not static. It's, it's sort of morphing. And there are colors. There are, there are sometimes there are very definable, uh, it's, it's usually almost, it's always an abstract painting. But sometimes it's geometric in its abstraction. Sometimes it's um, playing with colors that push and pull and stuff like that. Uh, it can be a variety of different kinds of abstractions. Uh, but, but that is not in my forward in my consciousness when I'm playing. Uh, but it is, but when I have finished playing, then I have an awareness that I've been looking at a, at a painting and, I, and what, it, what its colors were. And if only you had the ability to then project that onto a canvas or print it out. Let's connect <laughs> your brain via Wi-Fi to that printer and print out that painting for today. But you know, it'd be different every time. <laughs> yeah. It, same yeah. song would never yeah. come out the same way twice. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> Mine don't. Do, you, uh, do, your, do those different colors and the way they push and pull and those feelings and emotions, do they have different sounds? For example, if I said uh, uh, a wide brush stroke of red fading into white, what, yeah. is there a certain sound yeah. that might have? No, not for me. Uh, but I know what you're talking about. Kandinsky, the, the, the famous painter, um, but strongly believed that certain colors represented certain emotions. And he would intentionally, in his paintings, uh, and he was, a, he was an abstractionist, but using geometric forms, uh, beautiful, and he had a beautiful sense of form in his pieces. And that, that's real important to me as a composer and as an improviser. I want to create, create a well-balanced form, both in the written piece and in the composition. But Kandinsky strongly believed, and he tried to teach others that it was there, they just couldn't see it, that certain colors represented certain emotional states. But uh, what psychologists later learned is that in that in general that's not true different people can react to red in different emotional ways you know that sort of thing so no i don't but, but i don't do that but what i do do is i listen to the i listen to speech i listen to language and i i will try to imitate what i heard somebody say uh for instance uh somebody that's just saying the same thing over and over and you're just so tired of hearing it, you know, but they're just stuck in it, hearing their own self all the time. Or another one I sometimes would love to do, I don't, I could, don't even know where my hands are going to go right now to do it, but it's like somebody laughing, you know, like. <laughs> or like it makes me laugh. You just did. <laughs> that's what you did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Can you can you write that out on some sheet music for me so I can? <laughs> <laughs> I will have forgotten it in ten minutes. <laughs> music is language, and I found this 
in various countries, as I'm sure you have too. It, it's so incredibly universal. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it's wonderful to learn a new language, Spanish or French or Chinese or something. But um, I've gone places and been in places where we didn't speak the same language at all. I know you have. That's and, right. And yet somebody sits down at the piano and I grab a saxophone and somebody else is on guitar and who cares? Who cares? It's happening, you know, and if they're all listening to you and each other, you know, then it's then it's then it happens. Mm -hmm. And and earlier you said how at the solo piano you can go somewhere, but if you have a bassist or or you're a little more limited. And yet even within that framework, it doesn't have to all be prescripted. Oh, no. It's communicative. Yes, that's right. And of course, you come across those people at times who who, uh, you know, we say in jazz, you know, I know where you're coming from, you know. They, they, they quickly pick up on uh, the nuances of the way you like to make music, what speaks to you. And they pick up on it because it's in them also. And hearing you do that um, rings that little gong in them. And in so doing, they can, they can now come out and with that too, in themselves and join in, you know, rather than, if it doesn't, you know, really ring in them in some way, it's a lot harder to make, to make music with somebody, yes. it really is. But that, but that gets back to the, the need to learn how to listen in life in general, as a general topic, to the, the importance of learning. Our society doesn't know how to do that. Not only do we not know how to listen to, really listen to music, because we're always doing something else as we do it, uh, we don't know how to listen to each other. You know, uh, I think spiritually we don't know how to listen, really. I think the majority of, of us don't. We don't view it as a spiritual discipline and spiritual practice, the need to listen. You know, uh, those who are strongly spiritual pray a lot, uh, Muslim, Jew, uh, Hindu, Christian. But, but the majority of Christians, I believe, they don't ever listen. They talk to God. And I think God is saying, why are you telling me all this? <laughs> Why are you, you don't think I know, why are you talking to me? When are you finally going to shut your mouth and let me talk to you about me and who I am? Sit in the silence. Uh, I, I, I feel very strongly about that. What does your spiritual listening practice look like? Oh, look like uh, you'd see me sitting upstairs in a room by myself with the fan on. It's a little hot upstairs in my house. You'd see me there at three o'clock every afternoon, sitting in a comfortable chair with my eyes closed, perfectly still for 25 to 30 minutes. Uh, you also might, you also would see a, a 30 minute, 30 to 45 minute time period, either right before I went into silent meditation um, or right after it. And it's, for me, it works better right before in which um, I would have, I would be slowly reading something 
from, from some devotional literature, but more often than not, from, from the Word of God. Uh, and, and I don't read a large passage. I read, I read real slow, uh, looking for and waiting for that one word or sentence to jump out at me. And when that happens, that's when I stop. And then that's when I start a certain kind of prayer, praying that's called Exito Divina, which just means uh, bringing, bringing what you've read, let you talk, um, Latin, Divina, divine, bringing what you've just read to the divine. Allowing, allowing the divine to then open that up to you as being more than just words, more than just a story. How is that story relevant to you in your life now? I, I think the same thing, I know the same thing happens to me when I'm painting, I'm listening when I'm painting. Uh, I'm listening when I'm... Uh, mm, I'm listening when I'm improvising. What am I listening for? I'm listening for what, it, what should come next. And it's sort of like that's, it's given to me. I'm not making a decision on, before I start on, I'm going to do this, James, and then you'll notice that when I get to this section, I'm going to do this. That's boring. <laughs> I don't do that. I, I practiced a lot that way earlier in life, and it's very good, important to do that. It was a very good skill. But now I, I'm, I'm at a place where in painting and in, and in performing in which I'm as excited as the audience <laughs> to, to uh, try to hear what I think the music says that I am to do next. The frustration comes in if I, if I blow it, <laughs> uh, which only maybe I know, or if I split a key, then everybody else knows, but I don't worry about that too much anymore. Because uh, I don't try, it's not about being perfect. Have you ever uh, begun a performance by saying, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm just as excited as you, let's see what's about to come, because I don't know. That's right. Um, <laughs> I did once. I was invited to the art center to come and play for the opening of an exhibit, and they put the, their baby grand in there. And so what I did was uh, I played for a while while people talked, cocktail stuff, and then people got quiet, and I and, and they sat down in chairs to listen to me, and I and I stood up and I said, "Let's do this. Let me pick up you." Pick a painting on this wall in this room. Let me look at it and let me see, let me just play to you, for you what my interpretation of that painting would sound like. And uh, I just, that was a very spontaneous thing of me, and, but that's just like me. Uh, and so people would pick a painting and then I would do it. And they seemed to think that it was, you know, it, it seemed to work. And so uh, I really had a lot of fun doing that. Got me excited about doing that. What a fun change of mind where uh, often if, let's say we're taking an art class and the teacher says, I want you to uh, uh, explain and interpret this painting for me in, in, in 250 words or less. First of all, it's difficult because we're looking for the common language of the art world, you know, color and line and space and shadow and light. Yeah. What if instead we said, bring your art form to it and interpret? That's you see, the problem with um, 
I think it's important that we have good writers who are able to use the, use <clears throat> language, the language of whatever country they're from, in such a way as to where they can really take us beyond just the line and the color and, and, and the basic elements of art, of visual art. They can talk about them, but yeah, they're going to talk about them. But what works best for me is those writers who talk about, who can bring you into that work of art um, metaphorically. Then I, I, I experience, I mean, I haven't seen that art. I'm just looking, I'm just reading something in a book. Or maybe it's on the, the, the plate next to the page I'm on. But it's when they write that way that I can find the language to best express in, in language, in, in spoken language, written language, what that piece seems to, the essence of what the essence of that piece seems to be. It always will come up short because the art itself has to, it gets the, is, is the word. And anything else after that is less than, but some things can, but some writers can come close to bringing you in there. Hmm. And so it's the same as true with music. You can't say, well, uh, uh, what was that piece about? Or, or, you know, or why'd you do this there and that there and this there? Well, the, the music has to, has to, if you're asking those questions, then you're not listening to the music, you know. Now, a good writer can talk about how he structured the piece very well, balanced all that, but then he has to go beyond that so that you, and, and I found that the only, that metaphor is the way. And poet, that's why poetry is so great. Tom, I've enjoyed this more than you can possibly know. Thank you for your time. Thank you, James. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Life as Art. As always, if there are people that you care about that you think would enjoy this program, share it with them. They can subscribe by going to lifeasart.us, where they can also find random essays and thoughts, but more importantly, connect with the community at large and listen to previous podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next month.